you can experience much wider and deeper ranges of living and of relationships and of creativity and of bridge building conversations with people who are different from you than you would have otherwise. And that's a lot of what my work's about and that's a lot of what the, the book is about. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I'm really excited to share with you another fellow psychologist, colleague, and a really just brilliant, kind man. Kirk J. Schneider, PhD, is a leading spokesperson for existential humanistic and existential integrative psychology, an adjunct faculty member at Saybrook University and Teachers College, Columbia University, uh, co-founder and current president of the award-winning Existential Humanistic Institute. And he's here to talk with us today about his newest book, Life Enhancing Anxiety key to a sane world, which is now available everywhere. Kirk, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is awesome to have you with us today. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Rich. This is great. I, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. I can't wait to talk about your book. Before we do, though, I want to jump into the Kirk J. Schneider time machine. Take us back and tell us what puts you on the path you're on today. Well, that's a very long story, Dr. Richard. It's uh, it actually goes back to my my earliest days. Um, I was rudely awakened to this field uh, by a very grave loss of my seven year old brother when I was about two and a half, mm. and uh, my as you can imagine, my whole world just. Uh, turned upside down at that point and that of my parents as well um, it was a 10-month process dealing with him um, until the end and there was a, just a lot of upheaval at the time without going into detail about that but uh just suffice it to say that uh, i was uh ripped open to heavy questions about life at, at a very early age. And they were overwhelming to me. My parents were uh, psychologically minded enough and fortunately had the means to send me to a, actually a, chi a child psychoanalyst when I was six years old, because I was still struggling even at that point in a big way. Uh, and that was one of the most important encounters of my life because it that relationship helped me to gradually move from a place of basic 
terror and paralysis and overwhelm to gradual intrigue with my situation, asking, being able to ask questions about what was going on, having more of an understanding of, you know, what was just um, stirring so powerfully within me, feeling freer to express myself, my, my hurt, my, my anger. And I had a lot of rage, I had a lot of tears, but at, at bottom, just pretty much terrified kid. A lot of fears of, of monsters and witches and, and, and of death and dying. And so uh, this therapist was a real model of what I would call presence. Uh, an ability to really stay with whatever came up for me and and his own his own presence his own being was a great model for me because it it felt to me that he had been through a lot in his own life and yet here he was this you know accomplished um, professional psychoanalyst who uh, was also caring and kind and, and seemed genuinely interested in supporting me and helping me. So I, I would say I moved from a, a place of uh, terror and overwhelm to gradual incremental intrigue, wonder, and even discovery about this new situation that I came into. And uh, I, I became a more reflective person, uh, even at that young age, beginning to think about big questions about life. You know, what what really excited me, what really mattered about about life, about living. Uh, and I began to uh, explore a lot uh, with. Uh, a tape recorder. My father was a, a humanistic educator, he's a teacher, and he believed a lot in supporting the supporting creativity. So uh, we would do uh, plays together on the tape, old tape recorder, reel to reel, and uh, and I I would uh, reflect on you know everything from what was going on with me to society and pollution and politics, even when I was, you know, five, six, seven years old. And I became increasingly interested in uh, in science fiction, too. It was a really important part of my life. And there were great television shows at the time, Outer Limits and uh, the Twilight Zone. And they, they related to me. They were both... They went to very strange and disturbing places, but uh, they also brought up fascinating ideas and possibilities. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. 
I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. I don't want to take us down a tangent, but I, I think we could probably do a whole series of episodes on the Twilight Zone. It's probably one of the most brilliant shows ever made. Uh, agree. So interesting. So you had the influence of your father, uh, the tragedy with your brother that really shaped you. And now here today, you're really the leading person in the world for existential humanistic psychology. And you know, they, they say, I don't know where I heard this, that uh, the more syllables something has, the more complex it, it ends up being. So existential humanistic has eight. Uh, so uh, walk us through, for those that aren't familiar with what existential humanistic psychology is, give us a, a brief overview of that. Well, I think the, the simplest definition is it asks two basic questions, and they're both explicit sometimes, but mainly implicit. And they run through the whole therapy. And that is, how are you presently living? So it's a chance for people to take some time to explore, to check in. How's it going? What, what really stands out in terms of their, their life at this point? And it's usually their battle. It's a battle between a part of themselves that's trying to break through and liberate themselves to feel freer, to choose their lives rather than react, you know, to their lives. In other words, to respond, to be able to have greater capacity to draw from their thoughts, feelings, and body sensations, their whole body experience to direct their lives. And on the heels of that question of how are you presently living is how are you willing to live? So, okay, given that you're continually coming up against this battle and this place where you're you're stuck or you're feeling very contracted in your life, you're depressed, you're, you're anxious, you're fearful, what does that bring up for you? And not only... What are you wanting to change? Because people usually want to change something about their lives, people we see. But how are you willing to change? You know, is it actionable? And this, of course, can take quite a period of time. And I, I think uh, this is one of the problems in our society is we have a sort of quick fix, instant result model for living. And I, I do think it would be very, very helpful for, for more enduring change and deeper change for people to have opportunities like I did to be able to really grapple with these questions. How are you presently living? How are you willing to live over some period of time? And ex the existential humanistic therapist ideally provides a kind of mirror to that patient, 
an active and passive mirror. By by active mirror, I mean at the appropriate points, sharing his or her own uh, feelings, responses to that person's struggle uh, to deepen to deepen the exploration. That that's really the, the key here for from the therapist side. Is their sharing of their own response to reaction with the patient going to deepen the patient's exploration or will it stifle them? Or will it even add to their own fear and make them contract even more? Um, and, then, and then sometimes the therapist is a kind of passive mirror. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, but <clears throat> the, the therapist is helping the patient to gradually see their battle closer and closer. Um, you know, how they both <clears throat> block themselves in their lives, how they're stuck, how they're they're withdrawn, let's say, or maybe, you know, overactive, whatever the, the extreme is, and, and how they're trying to shift their lives. You know, the, the side that's trying to liberate. So by calling attention to the patient's battle, and especially people who are willing and able to go deeper into that battle, uh, the, the therapist helps the patient to keep revisiting the, the battle, the tension, the struggle. And um, the, the hope is that the patient will eventually see very vividly how they've been holding themselves back and crushing themselves. And now, or more and more, how they're not gonna not gonna take that anymore. And they're they're gonna they're gonna you know throw that off and come into this new place of meaning and pursuit of let's say a relationship or a project or a, a job that they've wanted to pursue, something creative perhaps, uh, or to just live a more uh, expressive, full life. And that's one of the greatest gifts that one can be given, you know, through a process like that. You know, what's interesting, you've you, and you used this expression a couple of times, how are you willing to live? How is a person willing to live? What, what changes are they willing to make? And, you know, the data has shown for many years that you know, usually when people make a change, it's because there's some sort of stressor in their life that's significant enough to bring up, bring about this change, which is why I think your book, your newest book uh, is so important right now. And I'm excited to dive into it in just a moment, because, you know, one of the things you said, you asked the question, how are you doing right now? I think there's a lot of people in the world that would answer that by saying not so great. And so uh, before we even dig into the meat of the book, I, I wanted to find out what was your impetus for writing the book? Well, again, it was it was my whole life uh, journey. Uh, it, it came out of a tragedy and, and very, uh, very stormy beginning. 
but also the the good fortune to have been exposed to relationships. And it wasn't wasn't only that early relationship with the psychoanalyst, uh, but it was a later very pivotal therapy in my graduate school when I re-experienced some of these very primal fears. so the the book comes out of a recognition that many of us go through very difficult times, and yet uh, if we can be fortunate enough, if we can be act active enough to pursue one of these helpful witnesses, like existential or depth oriented therapy, uh, we can. Uh, markedly turn that around and and it can last. And so my last depth existential therapy in graduate school has basically lasted 45 years. I was about 22 at the time. And, um, I feel that the tools that I gained from that uh, have stayed with me uh, for for all those years, and have been extremely important in having a greater sense of inner freedom, in particular. And that that's the gift is the capacity to stay with, to stay present to one's whole body experience to the degree possible. In other words, to feel like a whole person rather than just a part of a person, rather than just being in your head or just changing behaviors, let's say, in a very conditioned way, or or even uh, through medicine, something introduced from the outside to change you. I'm not saying those things aren't good or helpful. That's why I'm existential integrated, because I do believe, depending on the client's desire and capacity for deeper change, many bonafide approaches can be helpful. But for many people, uh, being able to work with them in this longer term, in-depth way of helping them to develop greater presence to their battle and revisit it and learn to stay with very uncomfortable feelings, body sensations, etc. That is the path to enduring change and richer change. So life-enhancing anxiety is all about developing the capacity to live with and make the best of the depth and mystery of existence. If you want to put it philosophically, if you want to put it more concretely, it's the capacity to live on the edge of wonder and discovery and not just terror and overwhelm when one is uncomfortable. And it really is very primal. I I do align with the psychoanalyst Otto Rank here, who talks about the basic uh, anxiety starting at birth. And this is something we all experience. And, And this is why I think uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable ideas are so threatening to people is because they have echoes of that primal separation from 
you know, a relative non-being and unity to sudden abrupt being and pandemonium. <laughs> and suddenly having to deal with this radically different world, which causes a lot of anxiety, a lot of physical threat that we didn't have in the womb and prior. Uh, and and uh, a lot of emotional, psychological threat, especially depending on how we're met by the parents and the culture that we're thrown into at birth. And if we're met with a lot of fear and a lot of prejudices and presumptions about threatening things, people, places, then that's how we're going to grow up and that's how we're going to can be uh, live a kind of contracted life or maybe a very surface life because it'll be too terrifying to go elsewhere. And for those who are traumatized, and if they're living that kind of thin life, it blasts the whole thing back open again. And we're faced with the abyss, with, with the radically unknown, with, the, with mystery, as I say. So this is really what life-enhancing anxiety is about. It, it, it's the basis of uh, optimal depth and existentially oriented therapy in that it's helping people to come to terms with that very primal anxiety of, of groundlessness and helplessness at birth, I believe, um, the, the echoes of that. We're, we're not going to be able to absorb it all. And I'm not, I don't want to get Pollyannish here and say, oh, well, all will be sweetness and light after you get this kind of therapy. No. But you, you can experience much wider and deeper ranges of living and of relationships and of creativity and of, of bridge building conversations with people who are different from you than you would have otherwise. And that's a lot of what my work's about. And that's a lot of what the, the book is about, including journey. I knew I knew you were going to get very deep very quickly because you're an existentialist. That's <laughs> what you guys do. But in all seriousness, what what's exciting to me about this book, you know, for many people, the 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 title might even sound counterintuitive, right? We're talking about life enhancing anxiety. Well, how does anxiety enhance one's life? I think most people they're anxious, they're stressed, they think that it's this is all bad. And then there's all these, you can't go anywhere on the internet without seeing, you know, the physiological dangers of anxiety. It increases your cortisol levels, your risk of heart attack and stroke. There's all these yeah. bad things, but there is something called eustress, right? Which is yes. good anxiety, right? And so, right. Um, and, and I, I know, of course, you, you write this book from the perspective of a therapist because, you know, the, this is what you are uh, in your training. But for somebody who picks this up, I, I wonder if you could share, you know, and again, I, I know you said that we as a society have a, a quick fix mentality, so I'm not necessarily asking for that at all, but maybe a, a couple of practical exercises or, or tools that somebody could do to begin this journey. I would say start with clearing a space, undistracted alone, if, if possible, to first of all, just take time to check in, to reflect on what 
what is happening right now in your life to the degree you can. I know this can be difficult for people as well, as people, especially people who are used to avoiding <laughs> precisely that kind of undistracted check-in because we have so many things that can distract us and we, we operate so much uh, in a quick fix mentality. Um, but so important to take time to slow down, to reflect, to uh, perhaps start with some full um, belly, belly breaths, diaphragmatic breaths, and see if you can observe your thoughts, feelings, especially feelings, body sensations images that come up, almost like you observe objects floating down a river. Uh, notice them. Try to notice them without fixating on any one particular, uh, you know, impulse or impression. Um, so that you're beginning to, to get a sense of what's operating on you. You're beginning to get a sense of, again, that battle that I was talking about before. For many of us, that battle is, again, that, that part of us that is the way that we're currently living. <laughs> and, you know, you, you may experience some of those stuck and anxious places as you slow down, you take time. But the more you do that, the more you practice that, the more you, you're really bound to come into to other parts of yourself, parts that are, let's say, frustrated with being that way, uh, sick and tired of it, defiant toward it, maybe angry about it, um, parts that have other fantasies about how you want to live. And, um, maybe something that you're aiming toward. There's so much that can emerge when we take time and take stock, basically, of our lives in an undistracted private place, maybe 15, 20 minutes even. Uh, it helps some people to, to write down stream of consciousness, what they're observing. Um, other people, I've had people who just just observe without writing anything down, just noting it. And in therapy, of course, it's something we can process, you know, when we meet the, the next week or what have you. Um, some people like to uh, to speak it, to talk it out in a tape, tape recording. It's another way to do it. And that, that's, that can be helpful in that it's a, a record. And so is the writing down as a record, something you can go back to. You can compare and contrast where you are now as where you were, you know, six weeks ago, especially if you keep it up as a practice. And I would highly recommend that one keeps it up as a practice. If one feels overwhelmed by it, I think that's a signal that, uh, A, maybe you're not ready for that, or B, you're, you're not interested. <laughs> in, you know, seriously encountering a fuller life for yourself. Uh, or C, maybe it's time to consider seeing a therapist to 
to work more deeply at that level, especially a therapist who will respect and appreciate that kind of process of exploration uh, and, and not, not only, uh, let's say, re reframing thoughts or reconditioning behaviors, outward behaviors, but is, is seriously interested in one's inner life and, and interested in helping one to find agency in that life, their own agency to discover themselves as fully as possible, as distinct from, you know, what the, the authority says or the therapist says or the, uh, the culture says per se, what deeply matters to that person, to you, living your life, because you're the only person living your life. <laughs> That's something we don't realize often enough, I think, is that no one else is going to be in that body for you know, 80, 90 years, hopefully. And if you're if you don't develop a, a, a rich and uh, enlivening inner home for yourself, you're going to have a lot of problems wherever you go, because that that home will be with you wherever you go, and whoever you're with. It's a place you can come back into, and it's a place that's that you're dwelling in. So that's a lot, Dr. Richard, but uh, it's a very roundabout way of answering your question about life-enhancing anxiety, but I hope people are getting the idea that it's really such a fundamental tool that needs to be developed. Um, you are contrasting it with the, the usual take on anxiety. Yeah, the usual take on anxiety is, is what's called signal anxiety. It's, it's probably evolutionary. Uh, it's a signal to us, a very primal signal of physical threat at, at bottom. Uh, you know, when we were running around the, the trees and the jungle and there was a tiger about to attack us, uh, it's, it's a damn good thing that we had signal anxiety to warn us to either fight or flee. Um, and... And the, the problem today or the challenge today is that although for sure that's still a, a very handy mechanism in certain cases when we're under physical threat or imminent threat, in many cases, uh, we're not under the, those kinds of threats. And, and yet we still have a lot of anxiety and stress. And that's because I think we never really learned, we never Many of us never developed the tools to work with these other aspects of anxiety that can be energizing, that can be life-affirming. Again, uh, oriented to curiosity, to wonder, to discovery, to adventure. Uh, and, and, and that has an anxious element as well. Uh, Engaging in uncomfortable conversations, yet necessary conversations with your partner to deepen the relationship or to decide what does deeply matter, what direction to go in one's life. Um, if you're going to be creative in your life, if you're going to pursue anything new uh, and often anything that brings you stimulation, excitement, there's, a, there's often going to be an element of anxiety. 
There's also this model called the uh, anxiety performance curve that might be helpful to your audience too. Sure, let's talk about it. What they've shown in studies uh, going way back uh, is that as anxiety goes up, performance goes up. This, this is often performance like public speaking <clears throat> or something that you're doing at, at work, et cetera. Uh, you're functioning. So your performance goes up as anxiety goes up, but to a point. And that's where it becomes a bell curve. So at the peak, you're, you're kind of drawing from this life energizing anxiety. But if it's too much anxiety, if you're beginning to panic, if you're scrambling, your performance goes down, right? So this is, I think, related to the eustress you're talking about. That goes back to Aristotle, eudaimonia. And, um, and uh, it relates to uh, psychological hardiness as well. Some of the studies of Salvador Matti, a wonderful psychologist who talked about psychological hardiness. He very much talked about hardy people even if they're very active and, and have a kind of type A personality, if they are, they, they, they feel some degree of control uh, and commitment over the challenging circumstances that they're in, uh, they actually uh, tend to be healthier, both physically and psychologically, than, than people who who lack that sense of control, commitment, and challenge, but are still scrambling and, you know, uh, going about, go going through motions, let's say, in their lives, or feeling stressed to do something that, that others are pushing them to do. That's a life-destroying anxiety, I think, life-eroding anxiety. So, in a nutshell, I believe that we have so much life-eroding and life-destroying anxiety precisely because we have not faced, we have not learned the tools to develop life-enhancing anxiety. And so it hits us blindsided later in life uh, when something shocking, traumatic happens, and we're, we're like the little kid, helpless and groundless and drowning. And uh, what do you do? Uh, some people overcompensate by becoming extremely destructive and tyrannical and dominating themselves so they can avoid being in that place. That's one of the most destructive uh, consequences of not dealing, not having tools to deal with anxiety. And we see that rampant, I think, in our our culture, unfortunately. I agree. I agree. Kirk, uh, I wish we had more time. This has been uh, deep and, and so insightful, but uh, I've loved every moment of this. Um, as you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guests just this one question, and I'm sure you're going to have a great one for us. Uh, Dr. Kirk, what is your biggest helping, that one most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? Well, my, my latest edge, my latest life-enhancing anxiety is this uh, YouTube channel. 
that I'm developing with a graduate student named Tyler Gamlin um, that is called Core of Depth Healers, Core like Peace Corps, C-O-R-P-S, of Depth Healers, D-E-P-T-H. And it's, it's an attempt to gather resources uh, for people, especially for people who have some training, uh, some serious ability to go out there in the world and uh, translate these principles of depth-oriented practice that we've been talking about, helping people cultivate presence, namely, but to translate those principles to addressing social crises in the world. So I have, I've been collecting videos. I, I've collected, I don't know, maybe 15 videos so far uh, that are examples of uh, applying depth principles to social crises. Like I have a number of my own uh, where I illustrate what I call the experiential democracy dialogue between self-identified liberals and conservatives or people from highly contrasting backgrounds to engage in humanizing, um, more dignifying conversations with each other rather than just labeling each other and reacting to each other as stereotypes. There are others on uh, dealing with gun violence from a more a depth perspective, providing people tools to work with with that, with the problem that, that raises. Uh, there's another between a psychoanalyst and a conservative talk show radio host, which is very interesting, where she's applying her psychoanalytic tools to working with somebody, quote, on the other side. Um, and there's an example from Braver Angels, from uh, William Doherty, who's a psychologist, the founder of that group, uh, applying his skills and the, the Braver Angels approach to uh, helping conservatives and liberals have humaniz humanizing conversations in a group setting. And a number of other videos of people exhibiting tools to help people deal with these uncomfortable situations. Tell us the name of, of that YouTube channel again, because I want to make sure people can get that. And we're going to put it in the show notes as well. But I want to, could you say that again? It's called Core of Depth Healers. Perfect. We will have, we will link to that. We will link to Dr. Kirk's book. Uh, but tell us your, your URL for your website as well, Dr. Kirk, so people can learn more yeah. about you. Thank you. My web my website is kirkjschneider.com. Okay. And again, we're going to have everything, Dr. Kirk, right here in the show notes uh, for this episode. Well, Dr. Kirk, this has been fantastic. I knew that it would be. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with everybody listening today. Thank you so much, Dr. Richard, and for providing the space and time for, for me to speak with substance here. Absolutely. 
And for those of you who took time out of your day to hear this conversation, to listen to us, thank you as well. If you liked it, if you learned something, if you're excited, uh, go give us a follow and a five-star review on your app of choice where you listen to this podcast, because that is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping, because the happiest people are those that help others.